Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are, of course, going to take a brief break from our series that we've been in through the book of Isaiah, and we are going to look at the resurrection. Obviously, we are going to use John's version, so if you would be finding John chapter 20, that will be our text this morning. Is it possible for news to be too good to be true? Well, of course it is. I mean, our world is filled with fake news, and we need to be discerning as believers with what we believe. So the next time you see that ad on Facebook that says all you've got to do is share or like this particular company's uh, page and they're going to send you a $100 gift card, it's not true. They're not going to. And you should know that because they didn't the last time you shared that. And yet you share it again. Remember that the next time you get that email that says somehow you are part of a grand inheritance and all you've got to do is respond and then you are going to receive it. But it's not just scams that target our wallets. It's all kinds of news these days that is either slanted, taken out of context, or just outright lies. We don't know what to believe or who to believe anymore. And so we've been duped so many times, we might just become skeptical of everything. Paranoid that everyone is out to pull one over on us, and therefore we tend to look at everything with suspicious eyes. And so we gather this morning on Easter. The question is, is the story of Easter of a risen Savior and an empty tomb, is it too good to be true? Is this fake news propagated by some overzealous disciples? Is this just a feel-good story that is simply too good to be believed? Or is this a factual account of a first-century miracle? Frankly, I assume, and I recognize that's troublesome to do, but frankly, I'm going to assume that you are here this morning because you believe the resurrection is a fact and not a myth. I recognize that people do come to church for other reasons. I assume there are a few of us here this morning out of tradition or habit. It's just one of the things you do on Easter. There are probably some others here that this is the one Sunday a year where you are willing to please your spouse or your mother and come to church with them, especially if they are cooking lunch for you afterwards. But the vast majority of us are in church today because we believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened, which begs the question that we ought to ask of any sermon, and that is, so what? What does an empty tomb in the early A.D. 30s in the Middle East have to do with my life today? What can that event that took place so long ago, how can it help me to live in America in 2021? Well, the truth is it can do much more than that. It can not only help you to live in modern-day America, but it can help you to live forever. It is the only thing that can give us eternal life. 
And while that might seem too good to be true, it certainly is not. We've been thinking all week and especially Thursday night about the events of that Holy Week, that Passion Week, all of those things that occurred in Jerusalem during that last week of Jesus' earthly life. But this morning, on the first day of the week, we gather with some women and two of the more prominent disciples of Jesus around the tomb where Jesus was buried just a few days earlier. What will we find? And what will it mean? Well, that's what we're here to talk about this morning. It's not enough to believe the facts. What we want to talk about goes beyond the facts, and we want to feel the impact and know the transformation. So let's look at John chapter 20 and see what this is all about under the title, Because He Lives. What difference does this make in our lives because Jesus is alive? Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb, both of them running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and, and he saw and believed. For as of yet, they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. First thing I want you to see this morning is that because he lives, we can have joy in our hearts. Now that was obviously not true of these people who were at the tomb on that first Easter morning. At least not at this particular moment. It would be true of them later on that day and beyond. Which also is further evidence of the transformation that the risen Lord brings to our lives. You see, instead of joy, they came with hearts filled with sorrow because they had no idea that Jesus was alive. It was the furthest thing from their mind that Sunday morning before the sun had even come up. The darkness of the hour indicative of the despair and discouragement in their hearts and minds. John introduces us to a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene, whom all four gospels place at the empty tomb. In John's gospel, the only other time she appears is at the cross in chapter 19. And in the verses that follow what we've just read, she is the first to experience a resurrection appearance from Jesus Christ. So John tells us about her coming to the tomb that morning. And yet comparing John with other gospels, we realize that all three of the other gospels have other women at the tomb with Mary Magdalene. Is this a problem? Is there a contradiction in the Gospels? Well, there are several explanations for this. It is possible that John simply wants to highlight this particular woman over the others, not negating that there were others there, just highlighting her. 
And in fact, if you noticed, she says in verse 2, when she comes to Peter and John, we do not know where they have laid him. So she uses the plural because there are other ladies with her. It is also perfectly, perfectly accept, acceptable for different authors to have different perspectives and to highlight different things in their account. It is also possible that Mary first came alone and then returned later with the other women. Either way, there is no contradiction here among the gospel writers. The only other thing we know about this woman comes from Luke's gospel. There he says that she was among a group of women who were followers of Jesus, and she in particular had had seven demons cast out of her. Now keep in mind that this does not necessarily mean that she was a psychotic like the Gerizim demoniac who lived in the cemetery. It just means that she had evil spirits in her lives, in her life. In chapter 8 of Luke's gospel, that is recorded for us. And since that follows chapter 7, obviously, and chapter 7 is the story about an unnamed woman who is said to be immoral or sinful, coming to Jesus and wiping his feet with her hair, there are many who try to equate that immoral woman with this Mary Magdalene. But there is no evidence to support that. And so what we do know about her is that she was a faithful follower of Jesus who had some sort of financial means because it is said of her that she financially supported his ministry. And she was, in some sense, even more faithful than the apostles themselves. For she remained at the cross watching the crucifixion. She stayed around after that and witnessed Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea wrapping the body of Jesus, even following them to the tomb so she would see where they had laid the Lord. John tells us that she came to the tomb that morning, but he does not tell us why. Again, the other gospel writers do. They make it clear that she and the other ladies had come to finish the burial process of Jesus. Nicodemus and Joseph had done what they could, wrapping the body in spices and cloths and the head with a separate garment. But because the death took place on the eve of Passover or on the eve of the Sabbath, they were not allowed to bury on the Sabbath, and so the burial was hurried. This seems strange to us because we can bury whenever virtually. We can postpone a burial in order for family to come in from town or for other reasons, but Jewish custom in that day was for a quick burial. In fact, Deuteronomy tells us that those who are hung on a tree who have died because they are criminals must be buried the same day and their bodies not be allowed to remain overnight. And we know in Acts that Ananias and Sapphira are buried immediately after their death. So it was simply Jewish custom and culture at that time to bury quickly. And so the body of Jesus was hurriedly prepared and placed in a hollowed-out cave on a rock ledge. And so these women come that morning full of sorrow. With the events of the crucifixion still fresh on their minds, fully expecting not to find a risen Lord, but fully expecting to find the body of Jesus. And that is why they are discussing along the way how they are going to roll the stone away so that they might gain entrance into the tomb so that they might continue and finish this burial process. They are filled with sorrow because they did not know about the resurrection. And so Mary goes to tell two of the more prominent disciples, Peter and John. John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He just doesn't name himself in his own gospel. And so they race to the tomb. 
Notice that in the telling, Mary gives no hint that there is a resurrection. She simply says, they've taken the Lord's body. That's what she assumes, and we do not know where they have laid it. But Peter and John certainly are not going to take the word of a woman whose testimony was not valid in court in that culture, which makes it all the more amazing that Jesus first announced the news to women, again, whose testimony was not looked favorably upon. And so Peter and John rushed to the tomb, not with sorrow as Mary had done, not with joy as we come this morning, but they come to the tomb with uncertainty. They did not know what had happened. They knew something had, but they had no idea what it was, but they intended to find out. So John wins the foot race, but pauses outside of the tomb looking inside. We often talk about the empty tomb, but the truth of the matter was it wasn't totally empty. In fact, I started to play off of that with my title this morning and say something about the not-so-empty tomb or something like that, but I thought I might offend you because we talk so often about the empty tomb. But there was something inside of that tomb. It wasn't empty, though, of course, the body of Jesus was not there. And so while John stoops down to look in, Peter brushes aside and barges into the tomb. We know Peter to be the brash one of the disciples, both in word and in action. And yet this is the first time we've seen him in the gospel record since that denial on the night of Jesus' arrest. And what they both see, John by looking in and Peter by barging in, are the claws that were once wrapped around the body of Jesus. And the reason that is significant, that that is still there, that the tomb is not empty, but his clothes are still there, is because of what they tell us. If, as Mary had supposed, someone had stolen the body, they certainly would not have taken the time to unwrap it and leave the grave clothes behind. This all leaves Peter very perplexed. He realizes this is a unique situation. The word in verse 6, lying there, speaking of the clause, is a word that is used elsewhere for things that are carefully kept in order. And the cloth that had been covering his head, there was two separate cloths, one for the body and one for the head. It was lying by itself, folded up as the ESV, which I read from, regards it. Some take it to mean not neatly folded, but remaining the shape of the head of Jesus. That is, it's still there in that oval or circular shape. So it's one of the two of those things. But regardless of the details, it is clear that the body had not been stolen. All indications are that somehow, some way, the body has passed through the grave claws, leaving them behind. No doubt there is an intentional comparison here to one of the great miracles that Jesus performed, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. If you remember that story, Lazarus, along with his sisters, are friends of Jesus, and he has died, and he's, Jesus has shown up after days. And he calls Lazarus out of the grave, but when he comes out, he comes out with his grave clothes on. And as a result, Jesus has to command that they unbind him, which of course is not necessary in this case because, again, Jesus has passed through the claws and left them behind. So this indeed is a strange scene for these two disciples. And they are no doubt uncertain about what they are looking at, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. 
So while Mary comes with sorrow and Peter and John come to the tomb with uncertainty, we have come this morning with joy in our hearts because we know for certain we are not the first ones on the scene and therefore we have the full story and the full story loudly proclaims that Jesus Christ is alive. It is one of the most well-attested facts in history. 500 plus eyewitnesses. The radical change in the disciples thereafter. The sheer fact that there is no other rational explanation. The immediate changing of the day of worship from the Sabbath to the first day of the week. Not to mention your transformation and mine and countless, others believer, countless other believers through the centuries all testify to the truth that he is risen. And therefore we do not come with sorrow we do not come with uncertainty. We come with joy in our hearts because Jesus is alive. So number one, because he lives, we can have joy in our hearts. Number two, because he lives, we have promises to enjoy. We know that Jesus made many promises during his earthly life, some of which apply to his resurrection. That is, he predicted, he promised that he would rise again. We ended our Thursday night series with those uh, Thursday night service with those verses from Luke's gospel where he said they will kill him and on the third day he will rise again. That's a promise. That's a prediction. But his disciples didn't believe his promises, or we might at least say they were confused about them. Looking back, and of course we know hindsight is twenty twenty. We wonder how they could have missed it. I mean, some of Jesus' statements were so very plain. They weren't hidden in parables. He simply said, as I just said from Luke's gospel, on the third day I will rise again. And yet they were confused about it. Perhaps they were the early Baptists who said, I hear what you're saying, but we've never done it that way, so it can't happen that way now. And so they heard the promises of Jesus, but for some reason it simply did not register with them. Now, we, of course, need to give them some slack. This was an unprecedented event. Verse 9 says that they simply didn't understand the Scriptures, specifically the Scriptures that dealt with his resurrection. They simply never allowed the meaning to seek in, at least not until after the resurrection. And then when they have the benefit of hindsight, we're told repeatedly that they began to piece it all together post-resurrection. Now, I suppose they understood ahead of time I suppose had they understood ahead of time that they would have been camped outside of the tomb waiting to see it for themselves. But instead, it seems like they go home, assuming that their ministry with Jesus is now over. In the wider story of the resurrection, we see another reaction to his promises. The disciples were confused and filled with unbelief, but the enemies of Jesus were afraid of his promises. They remembered him saying that if they destroyed the temple in three days, he could rebuild it. In fact, that's one of the charges they made against him at the trials, that he gave this preposterous statement that he could rebuild the temple in three days, a temple that had taken 46 years to construct and was still being modified at the time he spoke it. But Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple in Jerusalem. He was talking about his body. And so the enemies were cognizant of this by now and they began to wonder if they needed to make sure that this would not happen his enemies remembered and insisted that guards be posted outside of the tomb just in case 
It would also deter his disciples from stealing the body and claiming that the resurrection had occurred. This, at least in their thinking, was somewhat possible, and so they wanted to make sure that whatever they could do to make sure it did not happen is that which they did. But once again, from our perspective, we are not confused this morning, at least I hope you're not. We are not filled with unbelief, and we are certainly not afraid of the promises of Jesus. Rather, we are in a position to enjoy those promises. You see, he did say he was going to rise again, and he fulfilled that promise. And this is such a pivotal point of, the, of Christianity as a whole that since this promise has been fulfilled, we know that every other promise that he gave will likewise be fulfilled. And thus we can gather this morning to enjoy and rest in the promises of God. Promises to save us and to keep us. Promises to love us and never leave us. Promises of empowering us with the Holy Spirit. Promises of preparing a place for us. And because he is preparing a place for us, returning to take us to be with him in that place forever. So since he kept this promise to rise again, we can have confidence to believe that he will keep every other promise. And so we do not have to be confused about the promises of God we do not have to live in unbelief about the promises of God. And again, we're certainly not afraid that the promises of God might be fulfilled. We have come this morning because he lives to enjoy the promises of God. Thirdly, because he lives, we have a story to tell. We instinctively know that good news must be shared. In fact, the sharing of good news adds to the joy of whatever the good news is. The joy of having your first child or first grandchild is magnified by your ability to share that along with pictures with anyone and everyone whom you come across. It adds to the joy to be able to share. Likewise, if the resurrection is the greatest event in history, a transforming event for the world and for our lives, then we can't help but share it. We notice in John's story that Mary Magdalene runs to tell Peter and John. Though again, at this point, she doesn't understand what has happened. She doesn't believe yet in a resurrection. She's still under the belief that someone has stolen the body. But even this is enough of a turn of events to run to Peter and John and tell them that something indeed has occurred. But there's an interesting thing that happens in verse 10. Look at that verse again. Peter and John have come to the tomb. They have looked in and they have seen the claws lying there. And what do they do? They go home. I mean, the text simply says that they went back to their homes. That's not exactly sharing the story. Well, that's true, but once they do see the risen Lord, which is going to further their transformation and their understanding of this event, once they see the resurrected Lord, then they are going to continue to tell the story. After Mary has an encounter with Jesus at the tomb through the rest of this chapter, she went to what appears to be a larger group of disciples, not to just Peter and John at this point. And she comes with the announcement in verse 18, I have seen the Lord. And then she tells them what Jesus had told her. 
And then we see in the book of Acts how they transformed. In fact, the word there is they turned Jerusalem upside down with their teaching. They couldn't stop talking about the fact that Jesus was alive, even when that meant they were going to be arrested and imprisoned and some of them killed. They continued to share the story. So what is that story? What story do we have to tell? We can't just say the tomb is empty. Again, go back to that initial question I asked you. So what? We have to share with people the significance of the empty tomb, what that means for our lives here and for eternity. And so the story includes several basic truths. It's the message of salvation, and it is not that you have to be a theologian in order to share it. It includes the fact that the grave is conquered. Paul, at the end of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, which we read a piece of a little moment ago, said, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death, as you may know, generally lands toward the top of any survey of that which we fear the most. Public speaking is always right up there as well, though that's not as bad as you might think it is. But most of us fear death. In any culture, at any time, there is a fear of death because it is the fear of the unknown. We've never been there. No one has ever gone there and come back to tell us. Yes, I realize that every couple of years, someone says they have been, and they sell us their books and their movies as a result to give us all the details. But I'm saying no one's ever been there and come back. That's what Scripture says. And therefore, a large part of it is unknown. But the resurrection gives us hope. Knowing that he has conquered the grave means that we who follow him will also conquer the grave. And that's why Jesus is said, and again, we read this a moment ago, Jesus is said to be the first fruits. An agricultural metaphor, meaning that if the very first part of the harvest is good, it is proof positive that the rest of the harvest will likewise be good. So the fact that Jesus has conquered the grave means that we, we will as well. And therefore, it is no longer to be feared. The story also includes the wonderful news that sin is defeated. The grave is conquered and sin is defeated, which does not mean that we will never sin again, as is painfully obvious from our own lives. But it does mean that ultimately sin is a defeated foe. When Jesus uttered that word from the cross that we translate, it is finished, it means the debt is paid in full. And Jesus was not talking about a financial obligation. He was talking about our sin debt that its price to the Father had been paid, the wrath of God satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ so that our sins can be forgiven. But that statement, it is finished, is nonsense if there is no resurrection. In fact, again, 1 Corinthians 15 says, if Christ be not raised, you are still in your sins. But since Christ has been raised, sin has been conquered the debt has been paid, and we who trust in Christ are forgiven, all of which means then that victory is accomplished. I've told you before that I no longer watch my favorite football team live because my blood pressure won't handle it. And so I wait till the game is over with, I record it, and if they win, and only if they win, I watch it. And knowing the outcome, I don't get upset about any of it. If, they are, if there's a turnover, I don't really care. If the other team scores some early points and we get behind, it doesn't really matter. Because I already know the outcome. 
And the same is true in our spiritual lives. We know the outcome. And while there's going to be highs and lows in our lives, we know the ultimate outcome. And so those who put their faith and trust in Christ and his work on Calvary, which was proven by the empty tomb, have eternal life. His victory becomes our victory, and that is a story that needs to be shared. Lastly, because he lives, we have preparations to make. I know my wife was like a lot of you yesterday. She was listing the preparations that she needed to make for Easter. She had to decide on some menu items. She had to buy some food and begin the preparation for that. She had to finalize our Easter baskets. And yes, we still do Easter baskets even for the adults. Some of you with small children had to do even more than that because you had to color and hide eggs and get their clothes ready. And while all of those things are important, there are much more serious preparations that we need to make as a result of the resurrection. Now, if there is no resurrection, then the Bible is very clear. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. If this is all there is, then get as much enjoyment out of this life as you possibly can. Live for yourself and enjoy it along the way. But since Jesus is alive, there is a major decision that every one of us must make. Each one of us must decide if the tomb is really empty and what that means for our life. It's interesting in the text, though you can't pick this up in the English, there are actually three different words here used, all of which are translated in the ESV, saw, the verb to see, saw. In verses 1 and 5, both Mary and John are said to have seen or saw. It's the general use of the word, which simply means they had physical vision. They saw something with their eyes. Then in verse 6, Peter goes into the tomb, and this word here is a different word, and it is more specific and implies a little bit more than physical sight. It means that Peter is recognizing that something is different, and he's mulling it over in his mind. It's the word from which we get the word theorize. Peter's trying to figure it out, trying to understand what it means. Then finally, in verse 8, John goes in and finds the tomb, and this is a third different word, this one even more specific, that has the implication that John was beginning to understand the significance of what he saw, and that's why it says of John that he saw and believed. Now, there has always been scholarly debate about just how confident his belief was, given verse 9 says that they did not understand yet the Scriptures. I think his belief was real, but it certainly wasn't complete. And yet he is the only person in the Gospels of whom it is said that he believed in the resurrection before he ever had a personal encounter with the risen Christ. But my question for you is where do you fall on this spectrum? Are you looking at the facts surrounding the resurrection like Mary did initially, maybe even coming to wrong conclusions? You're just seeing with your eyes. Or are you at that point in your spiritual life like Peter was at this moment where you're seeing but you're realizing there's something of significance here and so you're mulling it over in your mind and yet you've not become convinced? Or are you like John, which by the way is the only true way to celebrate Easter? You've seen and you've believed, you have embraced the risen Jesus as Savior and Lord, at which point he begins to transform and continues to transform your life, making you into his image so that you can spend eternity with him. 
Have you humbled yourself and confessed your sin and put your faith and trust in the risen and reigning Savior? This is the most important preparation that you and I can make for Easter. And it is essential that we make it, not just for Easter, but for eternity. There are several themes that run throughout John's gospel, one of which are the signs that he records, all of which are designed to point to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He records seven such signs, though as we'll see in a moment, he acknowledged that there are many others that he could have written about. The first was the turning of water into wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Then there was the healing of the nobleman's son and the lame man by the pool at Bethesda. He fed the 5,000. He calmed a storm while walking on the water. He healed a man who had been blind from birth. And as I mentioned a moment ago, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Those are the seven signs that John records in order to point to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And yet there is one more sign that John records. It is the one we are looking at this morning. The greatest of all signs, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Last week, we were in Isaiah, and we, we saw Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth, early in his ministry, reading the scroll of Isaiah and sitting down and saying, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and they decided they wanted to kill him for blasphemy. The empty tomb is the ultimate proof that what Jesus said in that synagogue was in fact true that he was and is the Messiah, the one that Isaiah had prophesied and the one that we must believe. John records these words uh, later on in this same chapter uh, that we are in, giving his mission statement for writing this book. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these, that is those eight signs that I've just mentioned, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the fact that we can gather to celebrate the risen and reigning Christ. And I pray that all of us have come to that place where we see and believe, not just in words, but that our lives have been are and will continue to be transformed by this greatest event of all of history, the resurrection of the Messiah, in whose name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.